Welcome to the Hopeless Wonder Podcast Extra, episode 22, with me, Adam Gipke, Craig Rogers, and Andy McBride. And hello, listener. We hope you're having a good week or weekend whenever you're listening to this. So let's catch up with our co-hosts and find out how they've been doing. Craig, no Rangers or Roma to cheer on, but you were treated to your casual Scotland fixture with Israel. Um, are you craving club football even more now? You would not believe how much I am craving uh, club football. I know these internationals are, are meaningful fixtures now, the qualifying, but does it make them any more meaningful for me? So after that Israel game on Sunday night, I am itching for some club football, mate. Good times, good times. And Andy, um, we were sharing on our WhatsApp group that you've been taking to the pitch for the first time in 2021. Um, key question, are you better than Fred? Yes. <laughs> nah, I'm definitely not as fit, though. Oh, my God. I think every, everything hurt and I was dying. Um, to, you know, I slept into about, I had a couple of days off and I slept into about 12 o'clock yesterday. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I've only got to do it again on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the benefit of the listener, he's indulging in some gin. So um, I'm sure that pain will evade him very shortly. So um, let's talk about the World Cup qualifiers. Um, quite a number of set of results that took place. Um, we'll start off from last weekend. And I suppose I'm just going to select a few of the picks of the results that took place um, before we kind of allude to Tuesday and Wednesday's games. So from that weekend, we saw Serbia draw 2 all with Portugal. Um, could have been actually 3-2 to Portugal. Um, Ronaldo had his little hissy fit, um, but as it stayed, 2 all. I think the shock of those round of games, though, over that Saturday period was Ireland nil versus Luxembourg, who scored a winner with six minutes ago. So plucky Luxembourg did really well there, cast a few questions over Ireland. Czech Republic drew one all with Belgium. A shock result by Norway. They lost 3-0 to Turkey. Georgia almost pulled off a shock against Spain, taking a lead initially. Um, pegged that back by Spain uh, and then went on to lose 2-1 with, I think it was literally the last kick of the game. Um, then we went into Sunday's fixtures. So we saw Albania lose to England 2-0 thanks to Kane and Mason Mount there. Poland won 3-0 against Andorra. Kazakhstan lost 2-0 to France. Bulgaria lost to Italy 2-0. And Denmark completely trounced Moldova 8-0. So then we'll move into Tuesday and Wednesday's games. So Luxembourg, unfortunately, couldn't repeat the performance from the weekend, losing 3-1 to Portugal. Belgium won 8-0 against Belarus. Uh, Wales won 1-0 against the Czech Republic. Gibraltar lost 7-0 to the Netherlands. Montenegro lost 1-0 to Norway. Turkey drew 3-0 with Latvia. Croatia won 3-0 against Malta. Slovakia won 2-1 against Russia. And then the games that took place yesterday, so Germany lost 2-1 to our favourites, North Macedonia. So good old Garen Pandev there, still kicking and screaming. Uh, 3-1 win for Spain against Kosovo. Lithuania lost 2-0 to Italy. Uh, Northern Ireland lost or drew 0-0 against Bulgaria. Austria lost to Denmark 4-0. And then we had Scotland winning 4-0 against the Faroe Islands. England, unfortunately, beating Poland 2-1 and Andorra losing to Hungary 4-1. So, a lot of results there. Um, let's start off with yourself, Andy. What did you make of those qualifiers? Was there any kind of performances that you could pick on and say, 
you actually enjoyed? Oh, not really. I mean, it's like, I think with international football qualifiers, you just sort of sit there and enjoy them, really. <laughs> um, it's just, it's the same thing with England. It's just kind of like, you know, they're going to typically win most of their qualifiers, if not all of them. Um, and then the first half decent side that they'll face, they'll, you know, usually fall short. But it was nice to see that... Um, against Poland, a little bit of mental fortitude. I mean, I saw the um, mm. the errors that lead up led up to uh, Poland's equaliser, and it was an absolute calamity. I mean, it was just, you know, John Stones throwing it back to uh, last last season and beyond, really, uh, which I thought, you know, I, I thought he got to a point where he'd eradicated his errors out of his game. So it was a little bit worrying, but, you know, we recovered. And then um, Harry Maguire scoring a little bit of a screamer, um, off the corner, which, you know, I'd wish he'd do that for Manchester United because every time he gets his head on something or his foot on something in the penalty area, it just seems to go wide over the bar, miss some a yard out. But no, it was good to um, it was good to see a bit of character from them. Um, you know, there's a lot of people arguing at the moment, like, why are we playing two defensive midfielders? But, you know, I think that's the way that Southgate's decided to approach it. And I was thinking about the long-term part of it. It's just um, not many teams win the Euros by playing free-flowing football. You know, Greece shithoused their way to winning it in 2004. Um, You know, Portugal shithoused their way to winning it in 2016 with with Swansea City rejects. Um, Mm. You know, and and let's be honest, if England shithoused their way with two defensive mids and sweaty one nils for the Euros. I don't think anybody would be complaining. Um, and ultimately, when they come up against, you know, the likes of France, Germany, etc., etc., I think um, it'd probably be a good approach. But, yeah, it's uh, these qualifiers are sort of don't really mean anything um, until, you, you know, it's all about the major tournaments, really. And Craig, just get your thoughts on this because I thought actually Turkey came out of this set of like results really well. Um, pulled off some really good wins against teams they probably didn't anticipate to win. So, for example, against the Netherlands and then again against Norway. And I would have thought they'd probably be the favourites over Turkey, but Turkey are proving to be maybe outsiders right now. So um, what's your thoughts on the progress of Turkey? No, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's Turkey are not one of those teams that when you draw in a qualifying group, you think they're going to be a lot of trouble. Now, the Netherlands would have been absolutely the bookies' favourite to finish top of that group. And then you would have thought with this generation of Norwegian talent, they'd have been the second place. Um, but those two results turned the group on its head. And I don't think Turkey could have wished for a better start. The Netherlands kind of need to get themselves together. I don't think they qualified the last Euros, did they? No, I think they missed out on that as well. So they've got they've not got. They missed great... out on the world. They missed out on the World Cup, didn't they? Yeah, they, they missed one of the big yeah. tournaments recently. So they've not got a yeah, fantastic they missed out in record. Yeah, they've not got a fantastic record of qualification. So that's probably a little bit worrying for them. Uh, I would expect um, Norway to come good and start picking up results as well. So of all the groups, you, there tends to be one first CD team that kind of runs away with it. Uh, but I think that group there with Netherlands, Norway, Norway, and Turkey seems to be the exception. I think that's probably the group to watch. But yeah, great start for Turkey. It's not a league we usually follow, or we usually watch, to be honest. Um, yeah. But yeah, they can't argue with the results there. And Andy, obviously the shock probably is the island result. So Luxembourg beating them 1-0. And they only managed a one-all draw against Qatar in a friendly yesterday night. So um, 
Yeah, what, what have you made of what's been going on with Ireland? Um, is there bigger issues for Ireland to be worried about? Or do you think, as everyone seems to be alluding to, it's a team in transition, especially as Stephen Kenny hasn't had all of the players available to his disposal? And yeah, it seems like they're in a transitional phase right now. I mean, yeah, they are in the transitional phase, uh, but, you know, he still doesn't really excuse losing to Luxembourg, you know, for greatest respect to them. Uh, the problem is, is that the um, the Irish Football Association has been mismanaged for years. Um, you know, what mm. they've basically done is, especially through the 80s and 90s, they've pretty much outsourced their player development to England. So, you know, back in the days when you had like really sort of top talents, you know, like, you know, Roy Keane and um, obviously Robbie Keane, you know, Kevin Kilban and, you know, people with an, people with an Irish grandmother they found at the back of a sofa, um, they were, you know, they were doing all right. Um but now the talent isn't quite there. You know, you've got English clubs not really bringing through, um, you know, young Irish talent anymore. I mean, you look at, um, I mean, look at the, the more sort of recent uh, lineups. You know, you've got Shane. They played like, oh shit! I've just spilled my gin. Oops. That the uh, the last, you know, Republic of Ireland lineup. You know, you've up front, you've got Liam Brady, who's you know. Um, scores a goal once in about five years. <laughs> uh, you know, you've got Shane Long, who you know is not a prolific goal scorer by any stretch of imagination. He's on loan at Bournemouth at the moment. Uh, you've got James McLean, who is ambled around the championship, but you know, being generally speaking, not very good. You know, Jeff Hendrick, he's one of those players who comes up with one spectacular goal every five years, and that seems to get him contracts in club football. Uh, you've got the younger uh, Brighton lad, uh, Malumbi, who again hasn't had much game time. And then you've got Cyrus Christie. And then, you know, at the back, they had uh, Seamus Coleman, um, who's getting on a bit, who's still all right. And obviously, then um, Duffy, who... Um, it's about as useful as a chocolate fire guard, as we've seen since he's signed for Celtic. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they haven't really got, you know, and they were playing a lad who was, they're playing a lad um, at the back who's playing for uh, Rochdale. Um, so they haven't really got, yeah. you know, prim- regular Premier League players like they did, say, back in like 2002 when they were playing in like South Korea and stuff. But, yeah, even so, I think it's just 10 years of mismanagement. The League, of, the League of Ireland is an absolute mess. There's not really any talent coming through there at all. And obviously, financially, they've been woefully mismanaged as well, which impedes their ability to develop the game, um, you know, to the point where they're losing mm. their, a lot of younger players to Gaelic, you know, Gaelic football. And that's an amateur sport they don't even get paid for. So if they're not generating that much passion for it, um, you know, they will end up like a look like a Luxembourg. <laughs> so yeah, um I think it puts to bed the whole I think a few of the fixtures have put to bed the whole sort of pre qualifier argument that some people are having. You know, you look at Luxembourg beating uh, North Macedonia beating Germany. So yeah, I think the smaller teams are getting a little bit better. You know, even Andorra, they've got FC Andorra competing in like the second division of Spain. Spanish football, um, obviously, which will help them bring through players in the long term. So, yeah, it's um, there is some intrigue to it. 
And Craig, we've had a question that asked us off the back of last week's predictions. So um, Stephen Cole asked us, has our dark horse predictions changed off the back of these results? Now, obviously, one of the teams was your very own Germany, who lost to North Macedonia. Um, it was interesting to see Germany have kept the consistent 11 for all of the games that they played over this period. So... What do you think Joachim Love was trying to achieve there? Because clearly he's knackered out the players. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't know what he was trying to gain from it. But obviously it didn't have a good result for him on that Wednesday night. So um, yeah, are you starting to have second thoughts? <laughs> um, no, I'm going to stick with Germany. Although I did see that result last night and thought, shit, on the pod last week, I backed him as a dark horse. And that's the problem with publicly making predictions, isn't it? You can get caught out. Mm. I think they'll still I think they'll still be okay come the tournament. Germany do have a good tournament mentality. In terms of um Joachim Love, I don't know what he's trying to do. I think what he was probably trying to do was get his set eleven, hit them through these qualifiers, hopefully pummel all three games. The he's a starting eleven, perform really, really well and he feels like he's really well set up to go into the, the Euros. That's obviously not happened. So now there's a question in Germany of what does he do differently? Because surely mm. he can't go into the starting game um, at Euros with that squad. So he's got some decisions to make. Um, I didn't see the game, but by all accounts, well, they were pretty poor. Um, and if I have a 85-year-old mm. Goran Pandev score the winner against you, there must be something seriously wrong. So definitely some thinking to do there. But I still think that Germany, once they get there, I've got a feeling they'll be okay. I'm not going to rescind my, my prediction just yet. And uh, Andy, let's go into that England-Poland game. Um, what do you think Southgate got as a result of that result? Because I know we could talk endlessly about how England played, but the one thing that I think I raised on a different podcast was actually his tactical nous. And that still seems to be the case right now. We, he doesn't seem to have progressed that very much. So... Do you think a performance like they had against Poland was kind of the kick up the arse that he needed to kind of maybe start thinking about what he does in these games going forward? I mean, I said on the pod last week that I don't think Southgate has the ability to be able to change a game, especially when you come across against like the real big hitters in Europe. And my view hasn't changed there. I think, um, you know, probably one thing that is beyond his control is that he hasn't really got a world-class centre-back pairing. Um, you know, he's got two centre-backs, which are very, very good on their day, but both um, Stones and Maguire are prone to howlers. Um, you know, you don't know when they're going to come, but you just know they're going to come at some point. And, you know, that always creates a level of anxiety. Um, and I think also he needs to clarify the number one situation at the moment. You know, Jordan Pickford's injured at the moment, not been in good form. And um, I remember I remember back to the World Cup in 2010, there was a lot of if you know ifs and buts over who would start. You know, would it be Rob Green? Would it be David James? God, you know, that does make you think of options were far worse 10 years ago. Um but yeah, that sort of indecisiveness doesn't really help. You know, ideally going into a tournament, you want your back four settled. Uh, he doesn't seem to know who's going to be starting at mm. left back. I'm not convinced he knows his best centre back pairing. He doesn't know who's going to be starting at right. Uh, you know, which one of his 15 right backs is going to be starting. Um, I think 
up to, so that's where the concern is, is at the back of the pitch. I think up top, I think, seems relatively settled. Kane's going to start every game, provided he's fit, along with Rashford and Sterling. And then you're going to, I think Declan Rice has nailed himself down as a starter. Um, you know, he, he is a very, very good footballer. You know, he's, he's I guess it's not fashionable to call like English footballers um, that good, but, you know, he is. Um, but I just wish in some games, I think Mason Mount's good at playing a deeper role, but it's, there's going to be times where he's going to need to bring in the Jack Grealish and to change the game. But we'll see. Yeah, the main concerns for me in short are at the back of the pitch, 100%. don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, I, I, I still have this question mark over could he change a game when you're losing to a big kind of or bigger side, should we say? So I think it was evident in the World Cup against Croatia. And I still feel, yeah, these are the kind of games where he needs to experiment. He needs to understand what he can do in those sort of situations. And obviously, like you said, there was a mistake. And obviously, it was a question of what does he do next? And he kind of just sat back, didn't really do anything about it. Just maybe sort of gave the players a sense of trust. But, you know, you, you were going into the 85th minute, still drawing with Poland. Um, and I, on reflection of the Poland performance, I thought they would dare to be taken in the first half. If I'd be brutally honest, they were really poor in the first half in my eyes. Um, some really sloppy passing by Poland at times. And it was only that first sort of 15 minutes from Poland in the second half that you kind of went, oh, it's a bit of a game going on now. Um, ironically, Bim, you know, plays like Arkadiusz Milik, who was brought into that sort of setup for the second half, which I don't understand why he wasn't starting from the very beginning. But again, it could be something else to do with maybe his injury or fatigue. Um, but yeah, certainly, you know, for what Poland did, I was kind of clinging to hope that they would get a draw because, you know, on the balance of play, you know, they, they deserved at least a point. But, you know, that's the difference at this kind of level. It's about being clinical. And obviously, had we had Lewandowski, it might have been a different story, potentially. I don't know. We'll have to kind of reflect on that another time. Um, but, yeah, I mean, another thing that it brought out was about the England under-21s performance as well. So we had a question directly linked to this, which was, is it time for England to move on A.D. Boothroyd, given the lack of achievement with the under-21s? Obviously, the England under-21s went out last night despite winning against Croatia 2-1. And they previously lost against Switzerland and Portugal. I think what's been kind of the highlight of this whole kind of debacle is around Bouvoy's comments about the fact that actually his expectation isn't to develop the players, isn't about winning. It's about really just playing these kind of games and I think that a lot of England fans were scratching their heads, um, especially before this match against Croatia. He was citing um, the fact that certain players weren't available to him. So he kind of said the likes of Jude Bellingham and Mason Greenwood being like playing in the full team now, as opposed to the under-21s. And it got me thinking is actually, where is this England under-21 side going these days? I mean, they should, in theory, on paper, look and perform a lot better. Um, so let's get an outsider's perspective. Craig, um, what have you made of the set of results? And do you think A.D. Boothroyd is right with his thinking? Or do you think, actually, you know, England fans have a right to be disgruntled and actually demand for him to move on? 
Um, I can't I can't talk too much about the performance because I, I haven't seen them. But that list of results that you've you've read out is not good enough for the England under twenty ones. Um, first and foremost, his comments are quite strange. If an under twenty one international team is not there to develop players, then what is its purpose? Um, you are there to give young players that taste of international football, preferably in tournaments, give them that introduction to that environment, and then when they're ready, pass them on to the main squad. You know, they've been quite successful there with in that space with Bellingham, Foden, Mount, etc. And then surely the next the job for AD Bothroyd is to then look at the under-18s or the under-16s and think about who's the next guy to bring through. And that's a conveyor built through. Surely, when he came to that job interview, he understood that to manage a nation like the England under-21s or the French under-21s or the Germany under-21s, when you have these players that are 17, 18, 19, 20, who play for Chelsea's, Bayern Munich's, Dortmund's, uh, Manchester City's, if they're playing in the Premier League week in, week out, and they are 19 years old, then they're going to be playing in the England squad. That's that's the nature of being the manager of an under-21 squad with the likes of England. So uh, his comments are quite strange. I don't really understand. Did he think he was going to get Jude Bellingham until he was 21 years old when he's, he's turned up in the Bundesliga? That's just not going to happen. Yeah, I can tell you that. Um, same with Phil Foden. Phil Foden won't be playing in the under-21s. Mm. He's one of the players of the Premier League this year. So yeah. quite strange. If, if I was an England fan... Looking at that, and the manager of our under-21 squad was saying that it was not his job to develop players. That's a, a very damning comment and a very damning attitude. And I would certainly be looking for the FA to bring in someone who understands that role better and who has a vested interest in developing young talent for the national team. Absolutely. And Andy, if you had the option right now to kind of pull the trigger and bring someone else in, who would you bring in to replace him? I mean, they're probably too good for those kind of jobs, but... I think you want, you know, A.D. Boothroyd has had one half decent season at Watford where he got promoted. He's he's dined out on that for the past 15 years. Like, he's, you know, you've got these really precociously talented young footballers like, uh, you know, Phil Foden, Mason Greenwood, Hudson Adoy, you know, Max Ahrens, you know. And it, I'm sorry, but a half decent manager should be able to get more of them. I've just been looking at the, the lineup for um against Croatia. You know, Curtis Jones, like he's been getting quite regular starts at Liverpool this year. Like, you yeah. know, not every game, but considering the age he is and the team he's playing for, he's been getting games. You know, Eddie Niketia, again proven before at championship levels, chipped him some goals at Arsenal. Eze's playing every week for um Palace, McNeil's playing every week for Burnley, you know, Oliver Skip, highly thought of at um Spurs, you know, Conor Gallagher pretty much playing every week. Um, at West Brom, you know, Premier League teams. Um, you know, Tanganga played quite a few games for Tottenham, not so much this season. Max Ahrens, you know, a very wanted, very much wanted attacking right back. Wilmot plays a lot of games. Like Ramsdale, all right, not the best, but he is a young keeper playing week in, week out in the Premier League. So, you know, even on the bench, you know, they had like uh, Ryan Session, Todd Cantwell. I mean, but that is more than enough talent to get through groups at under 21. You know, they're, they're not exactly 21-year-olds who never played a game of senior football in their entire life. A lot of these are pros playing regular football or coming off a bench for top teams, either in the Championship or in the Premier League. Um, so, yeah, that whole excuse is impossible to manage, I think, is nonsense. 
because um, if you're good, you know, as the expression goes, you, if you're good enough, you're old enough. Um, so yeah, I think they just need to get somebody in, like a, you know, like a Eddie Howe or a Graham Potter. All right, hypothetically, the God, yeah. but th- that kind of figure who understands a more modern way of playing football, you know, more possession based, more technical. Um, I don't know who that figure is that would take on an under twenty one job, but there's got to be somebody somewhere that is more in thinking with how the game's played these days. And A.D. Boothroyd is just not it. So just to name someone, not Frank Lampard? To be fair, I would actually say Frank Lampard would actually be all right at it because as much as he wasn't great at the tactical side of it, he was good at bringing through young players. You know, Mason Mason Mount, uh, Fiaco Tamori, they've got a lot to uh, owe Frank Lampard for for their careers. Um, you know, he's worked trying to bring in sort of, you know, Hudson Adoy through. He's, he's, I would actually say Frank Lampard would be quite good with younger players. Um, you know, and when you look at his Chelsea side, it did play quite reasonable football at times is they just couldn't defend to save their lives but if you're looking to develop young technical footballers you know that at the end of the day it's with the, when it comes to the underage side it's more about what development they're getting and what they're learning and the style of football they're playing you know the results and stuff will come later down the line um so i don't actually think that would be a bad shout personally okay interesting because i actually felt Eddie Howe, personally, I feel like he's got the philosophy, a bit more experience in the sense of he's been managing for a little bit longer. And maybe that sort of aspect where he fits that English DNA that they uh, produced a few years ago, um, he kind of fits that philosophy. Um, I felt Lampard, you're really hiring Jody Morris than you are Frank Lampard, just purely on the tactical aspect. But that's me. Um, but anyway... For the listeners' benefit, that's the end of the international section. And we'll move into part two where we talk about normal football, guys. So uh, club football is back (laughs) from this weekend, guys. Um, But before we go into the games themselves, we've actually had a few stories that have happened this week and more importantly today. So uh, Mino Raiola, I don't know if he's been playing some April Fool's jokes, um, but he seems to be uh, flying all over Spain right now. so he spent the first part of today in Barcelona, supposedly talking with uh, Jean Laporta about the future of Erling Haaland. And uh, supposedly he's now flying off to Madrid to discuss some other business. Um, so um, just on that point, I mean, uh, sensational news, if it is true. But um, Craig, what, what do you make of these latest developments? Do you think there's some truth in Erling Haaland potentially going to Spain? I think there's probably some truth in, in Erling Haaland going to about seven or eight different clubs because these seven or eight different super clubs all desperately want him. I wouldn't be surprised if he was linked to just about every big club in Europe. I'm surprised that Barcelona have been the first one, though, due to the, the level of financial trouble that they're in. Um, I know what Andy was talking off air about how Barcelona and Real Madrid always seem to find some money down the back of the sofa. But if I was a creditor mm-hmm. for Barcelona, I'd be saying, well, you owe me a million pounds, guys. Where's my Where's my money? Um, so yeah. I'm not quite sure where it's coming from. But if it was Barcelona today, Real Madrid tonight, Bayern Munich tomorrow, Man City on Saturday, it wouldn't surprise me at all. He's the hottest property probably in world football right now, um, on par with uh, Kylian Mbappe. So not surprised at all. If Barcelona can get him, it's, it's a massive, massive piece of business. You would have to say 
what would that mean for Antoine Griezmann? Because I don't mm. can't see them really playing in the same team. They tried to play Griezmann out wide uh, when Messi was there. It didn't really work. Um, will Messi play a different role? Because I can't see Haaland playing out wide. But it would just be such a Barcelona thing to do where you've got so many leaks all over the pitch, so many areas you need to invest in more than a centre-forward to then go and spend 18 million euros on a centre-forward. They'd be far better served spending that money on a centre-half, a left-back and a holding midfielder, as an example. Um, but mm. this is what Barcelona do, this is what Real Madrid do. Uh, look at this shiny new thing, forget all the holes at the back and look at this new striker we've got. So very, a very Barcelona thing to do. But we'll see. I would like to see him go to Barcelona. I would, I'd much rather see him um, come to the Premier League, if I'm honest. Yeah. I think he's well suited to the Premier League and I would love to see him here. But, you know, money talks and Barcelona are still, albeit with their, their current financial problems, are still one of the biggest draws in world football. So, it'll be interesting to see and it's probably going to be one of the stories for the summer and I don't think it'll be settled for a while yet. And I know Mino Raiola, Andy, he's a big fan of Man United, um, particularly with his dealings with Paul Pogba. Um, but he has said some interesting stuff prior to what happened today. So he kind of slated off Pep, um, said he has no interest in any clubs. Um, it's ironic because actually on the same day, we had agents' fees released for what was spent for the 2020-2021 period. Um, Chelsea spent 35 million on agents. Man City came second with 30 million. Uh, Man United at 29 million. Uh, Liverpool 21 million. Arsenal and Spurs both at 16 million. And even Newcastle spent 11 million on agents during that period of time. And I don't know what they actually bought with that money because I'm struggling. I'm sure Newcastle fans are feeling the same way. Um, Jesus. But yeah, Andy, do you feel there is this shift of power to agents as opposed to players these days? Because I've just read out a few of the fees that have been spent in this pandemic period, which equates to for every £10 that's going into the Premier League, £1 effectively is going to a player's agent right now. So um, yeah, are these super agents potentially going to ruin football going forward? I think this has changed how we look at football. You know, I think the days of signing a player and expecting them to be there for 10, 15 years, um, you know, I refer to like United Class of 92, where you had players there from, you know, from when they were teenagers till they retire. Football isn't like that anymore. And I think Mina Riola probably represents how modern football is. It's not pretty. It's not very likeable in some ways, but he is out there for the player. And I think one of the things that always comes out, he maps out a player's career path. Um, you know, you, you know, you know that we, you know, Riola knows that he'll go to Dortmund for a couple of years, then he'll move on to another club. And then there's every possibility he can move on to another club beyond that. Um, you know, obviously he gets his fee, but he's very, very good at being able to get assets that everybody else wants. Um, and ultimately, like, mm. you know, one in one in ten pounds is ten percent. Um, and a lot of clubs these days have to have good relationships with agents. You know, if you look at the Wolves uh, relationship with Hawk Mendes, that's benefited them hugely out of the sort of the players they've been able to get in. Um and I think that side of things does help. Um, and 
I was re- I was looking at some looking at a couple of comments on Twitter earlier, and I think somebody said, you know, everybody says it won't work with somebody until they have something someone else wants. Um, and I think it's a classic case of Haaland. You know, he hasn't got a good relationship. You know, Riola hasn't got a good relationship with Barca. Hasn't really got a good relationship with United over Paul Pogba. Hasn't hasn't got a terrible relationship with Pep Guardiola going back to the Ibrahimovic days. But ultimately, like if um, he he is a once and he's one of those generational footballers you're only going to have like a, a once in a lifetime chance of getting at his absolute peak. Uh, so I think a lot of clubs would be quite happy to swallow it, swallow their pride, swallow the reservations and just pay the money. Um, you know, there should be some regulation over how much agents are paid. Um, but, you know, they are out there for the footballer, a footballer only. Um, and I think, you know, there was an anecdote in the um, United-based podcast I was listening to, basically saying, you know, Fergie used to sit people at a table and go, like David Beckham, uh, his dad didn't know anything about contracts. He'd just go, sign here, mate. Um, and he probably could have got a better deal at the time as a teenager. Uh, so although it's in the best interest mm-hmm. of the club, you know, these days it's like from 16, 17 years old, they've got somebody looking after their long-term interest in many occasions so yeah you know he is an absolute bastard uh but he's very good at what he does um because that's the only that's why if you look at all the top footballers under his stewardship they're there for a reason um you know you look at Ibrahimovic mm. he's stuck with him for throughout his whole career pretty much um he gets results so yeah it's um yeah, you've got to deal with the devil sometimes. And the other big news that came out from Manchester City at the beginning of this week was Sergio Aguero. So after his association of almost 14 years, he'll be leaving the club. Um, obviously, uh, joy for Man United, potentially, because they'll see the backside of him. But yeah, obviously, that does give some question marks around his future and where he's going to land. Um, I shared on another podcast that obviously... There's a few clubs that are sniffing around for his services and potentially it might be that he goes to Italy because um, apparently he's moved in with his new girlfriend who wants to go to Italy and um, Inter Milan are sniffing around for his services. Um, but Craig, just get your thoughts on this. I mean, obviously he leaves a legacy at City for what he's achieved down there. Um, where do you think would be a good fit for him going forward? I think there's a number of places he's still he's still a, a fantastic striker and, and one of the best strikers in the Premier League and I think he could do it still just about anywhere else. I think there's almost like a very finely balanced um, set of dominoes in European football at the moment in terms of strikers and I almost feel like with Aguero, Haaland, Mbappe, Martinez at Inter, there's almost like we're waiting for one of these dominoes to fall and I think a chain reaction will start to go and you'll start to see players moving pretty quickly. I think where Aguero ends up will depend on where other clubs do it. I think if Haaland goes to um, Barcelona, then Aguero won't go there. Will Lautaro Martinez go to Spain? Will that then open up a space for him at Inter? Will Mbappe go to Madrid and then potentially Aguero to PSG? I think there's we're almost at a bit of a, a standoff at the moment. And I think once one of those dominoes falls and we get the first big transfer, I think we'll start to see quite a lot of movement. But to answer your question, I think Aguero... PSG, I could see him rocking up at um, Barcelona. I could see him at Inter Milan. I could see him at Juventus. I could see him just about anywhere, really, and still do a job. I really could. Potentially, if I was if I was Chelsea, 
I don't know if he wants to stay in England or not, but I was, if I'm Chelsea, I'm thinking, if we are not happy with Timo Werner, can we move Timo Werner back to, to Germany? Could you put Timo Werner as a swap deal for Haaland, as part of a swap deal? And Timo Werner plus cash, would you get Timo Werner off the books and then bring in Aguero for a season or two? There's, there's unlimited options. I think Aguero is probably in a position where he's leaving on a free, I believe. Um, mm. So he'll be able to command a big wage. Someone's going to bet on it for free. He'll be on a monster wage wherever he goes. Um, but wherever he does go, I can imagine he'll, he'll be playing Champions League football next year for a massive club in Europe. And Andy, if you were in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's shoes, would you uh, take the plunge and bring him over to United? <laughs> no. <Three wishes>. Um... <laughs> No, don't get me wrong. I think, you know, taking my obvious bias aside, he is, you know, he is in that conversation of the top four, you know, three, four, five best strikers that have been in the Premier League. You know, he is in that conversation. And, you know, as much as he's, um, you know, notably in that 2012 winner against QPR, which I've seen over and over and over and over again, unfortunately, um, you know, and also the amount of times he's battered in a few against United. Um, he is a wonderful, wonderful player. Um, you know, even though he plays for Man City, I do, I do admire him. Um, yeah, I think it's too early to be thinking about the likes of, say, MLS or China or Saudi Arabia or going back to Argentina. Um, I think, I reckon going back to Atletico Madrid, I think would be a good move for him. Uh, you know, Torres went back, Diego Costa went back, obviously Luis Suarez at his age went there, has done a good job. Like they, they seem to be able to get an extra year or two out of aging strikers. And I think another club that's quite good for doing that are the two Milan clubs as well. You know, um, mm. so I think Italy or Spain, I think would be his, where his next move will be. I think um, anything outside of Europe, you know, with, with respect to his ability, is a good three, four years away. Um, I think if he could stay injury-free, which is his, his main problem over the past year or so, um, he'll still he'll still bang in 20, 25 a season if you if keep him fit. Right, listener, we're going to move into another subject, which is the ECA putting pressure on UEFA. So for the benefit of those that don't know, the ECA are the European Clubs Association. So essentially those elite clubs that want to put some pressure on UEFA in terms of the Champions League, but also more in terms of shift of power. Andy, you've been reading a lot into this subject. Um, just for the benefit of the listener, what is it they're actually demanding? So, um, obviously, every couple of years or so, you always get a lot of um, talk and you know, hot air over a European Super League. Um, you know, it's no secret, really, that the top clubs in Europe, you know, for the benefit of the doubt, we're talking you know, Bayern Munich, you know, Real Madrid, Barcelona, United, City, uh, you know, all the sort of really big clubs, uh, big, biggest and richest clubs in Europe, you know, they want to be able to change European competition to a way that it suits them. Now, the Champions League is UEFA's biggest asset. It's his biggest money grabber. Um, so it's in their best interest to keep the big clubs happy. Now, the time in which changes are able to be made is at the end of broadcasting deals. You know, I alluded when we spoke the other week about the Dutch-Belgian league merger, it's because TV deals were being renegotiated. And this is the stage we're at with the Champions League. So in 2024, the existing broadcasting rights we have at the moment expire. 
uh, which means everything's all got to be agreed with all the clubs and UEFA. You're basically starting over again. Now, the proposal that UEFA has come up with and that this is basically to one kill the Super League idea and two make more money. You know, there's no real sporting integrity um, at the heart of it. There, you know, that's the main objectives. So what they're looking at at the moment is basically at the moment you have a 32 team group stage, groups of four. Everybody knows how that works. Well, the way it would change now is that it will be a 36 team group stage. Um, and it's like a Swiss uh, system or round robin, as some might say, based and you, you each team plays 10 games. Obviously, your fixes are based on like seedings and all that kind of stuff. And then at the end of that, those 10 games, they're all ranked from um, you know one to 36. Now, the top eight teams go through to the last 16, no problem at all. The remaining 24 teams still get still get a potential bailout of a playoff to decide the other eight places. Uh, so you'd, you'd go from a group stage where there's six games uh, to five games. So that's more, you know, that's more money. You know, you're going to get a higher chance of the big teams playing other big teams, and there's more games, thus potential for more money. And also, the way it's structured is that if a, you know, let's say United, for instance, have a bit of a dodgy campaign, don't reach the last eight, they can still reset, go to a playoffs, and make it through to the latter stages. Um, now, the European Clubs Association, you know, as you said, it's the who's who of elite clubs. They haven't been able to agree a unified position on the subject. Uh, so there was a meeting this week with UEFA, which is meant to be able to, you know, put a seal on what's going to happen going forward. That's been put back. And the issue is is about the, the broadcasting rights. So, um, you know, apparently the likes of Ed Woodward, uh, surprise, uh, Ferran Serrano, uh, the chief exec um, of Man City, um, are sort of behind it, and they want basically the bigger clubs want to saying how those rights are distributed, how they're marketed, and how you know how the funds gained from them are distributed, uh, and that's one of the key issues, um, you know, with some clubs. Now the thing that's um, the trickle down effect, if you like, that is causing is that number one because there'll be more games. It'll put pressure on the domestic leagues and domestic competitions. So if you think about over here, we've got the League Cup uh, with, you know, whereas a lot of countries don't have that. That's going to cause a few issues. Um, The other part of it is how Champions League places are um, awarded. So there's been a suggestion that places would be awarded by um, their coefficients. So say, let's say, for example, Liverpool this season, finished outside the top four, which, let's be honest, is a realistic possibility. But based on their strong European pedigree, which they do have, you know, they made it to a final and won it the year after, um, they would quali- they would be one of the ones likely to qualify for an extra place in the Champions League, thus, keep- thus keeping a big team in it. So it, it is a bit of a shameless money grab. UEFA are having to do it because, you know, there is this lingering threat of a European Super League and they've got to do something to placate them for the next few years. Um, But yeah, I think it will be a case of um, you're going to get seasons where Barcelona could finish 10th in La Liga (laughs) and still get a Champions League spot for next season. So it's, um, yeah, I think 
it's good news if you're one of the um, traditional powerhouses um, of European football, but probably not if you're, say, like a, a Leicester City trying to break in and get a foothold. Um, so, yeah, mm. that's, in essence, what's going on there. It's uh, There's meant to be another UEFA meeting in the latter end of April, which apparently they'll decide what's going to happen. But, yeah, it um, seems a little bit messy, as, as it always is with UEFA. And, Craig, I suppose a club like Rangers obviously have aspirations to be in those Champions League mixes. If these so-called elite clubs were to decide to almost break away, I mean, would you be fearful in terms of how football is then perceived? Because I'm sure, obviously, I crave those Champions League nights. Probably you do as well. I I prefer the current setup as it is. Do you think it needs to diversify? Or is it just a case of these clubs are getting a bit greedy, trying to become a franchise almost, and, you know, have a disregard for the fans? Yeah, they're they're almost trying to create a members-only club aren't they? And it sounds, to be honest, it sounds like a total fucking mess. They're, they're almost trying to take away the equality of opportunities. So if you are a, a Leicester or even a West Ham this year or an Aston Villa, as unlikely as it may seem, when you start the league in August, you can potentially qualify for the Champions League. And that's what these clubs strive for. These clubs that finish 5th, 6th, 7th, that's what the real aim is. If you then say to them, you could have a wonder season and finish 3rd, but if England have six places and Man United, Liverpool and I would imagine that Arsenal might be one of these member clubs historically, um, you can finish third, have the best season in the, your club's history and still not get the reward of the Champions League the next season. So for me, I think it is, it is a shameless money grab, Andy's right. I'd be really, really disappointed if this happens. But on the other hand, I am realistic and money does talk. These guys are the biggest names in football, UEFA make an awful lot of money from the Champions League and they cannot afford for these clubs to form a syndicate and the top eight clubs in Europe say, we are now going to, as a group, not play in the Champions League and we're going to set up a mini last day every year and just play each other because mm. the, then the TV rights for the Champions League, if they don't have the, the two Spanish giants plus um, Liverpool, Man United, the Milan clubs, etc., Juventus, if they don't have them in there, then BT Sport and Co. are not going to spend the money on the rights for them. We're going to spend the money elsewhere. So I get that you have to do something. Uh, I'd be really disappointed if we end up with you know, a, a sixth place or a seventh place Liverpool in the Champions League. I think I would much rather see the champions of Norway or the champions of Austria or clubs that are really, you know, the best. I mean, the clues in the name, the Champions League. Mm. I mean, you can't have you know, no disrespect to Spurs fans, you can't have a team like Spurs qualify for the Champions League over a team like Rosenborg, who are the champions and long-time champions of their, their respective countries. That, for yeah. me, doesn't sit well. Um, it, it just doesn't sit well with me. Um, but, like I said, being pragmatic, money talks and something will likely change. Um, but we'll see. But for me, it would be it would be a shame. A real shame. And Craig, before we kind of allude to the fixtures that are taking place this weekend, um, big news that came out of Glasgow, Alan McGregor signs a new one-year contract extension. So, uh, yeah, obviously great news for you guys. Um, how old is he going to be next season? I think he'll be 40. So he's 39 now, so he'll turn 40 um, during his last year. He signed a one-year extension. 
but I don't know how much you guys have watched Rangers this year, but obviously I've watched every game and he's looked superb. He's been quite clearly head above head and shoulders above any other keeper in Scotland. If he hadn't retired from international football, he'd be going to the Euros as a number one. Mm. Um, some of the saves he's pulled off, particularly at the Old Firm game at Ibrox, were, were yeah. unbelievable. Um, I think if Alan McGregor was 25 years old, he'd be a £50 million yeah. goalkeeper. He really is that good. And if he could have commanded his box better, he would have played for a real big club. So as a shot stopper, he really is one of the best in Britain, without a doubt. But questions are asked about commanding his box. But right now, happy to have him sign another year. I'd quite happily have him sign a two-year contract because I can't see this form going anywhere else. And right now, to go out and buy a replacement of that quality would cost him more than £10 million. So absolutely delighted with that news came through today. Um, you can tell by the smile on my face. <laughs> yeah. But, um, We've got Scotland's best keeper back for another year, and he's probably one of our players of the season, to be honest. So, yeah, fantastic news for us. Absolutely great. No, I have to say, he's got cat-like reflexes whenever I've seen him play. So, um, yeah, you've got to hand it to him. Very good player. Very good player. Right, we'll move into the fixtures that are taking place this weekend. So, um, yeah, I think we're going to go with a different approach, though, right, Craig? Because we're going to have a little bit of a summary of all leagues, or most leagues anyway, because um, we've even had a question uh, relating to Portugal. So um, where do you want to start, I suppose? I'll start off with the league. So the question about Portugal, and then we're speaking about Turkey as well, and I thought these are leagues that we never really touch on the show. Mm. So I've got 10 leagues um, tables up in front of me, um, some that we talk about, some that we don't. I just wanted to do a little summary of what the championship title race is looking like in each of these leagues. Um, I always feel that when you come back from the, the March Internationals, it's almost like the home straight. It's almost where yeah. if it was 100 metres really, you'd be giving the bat into the very last sprinter and you'd be coming up there. So we're really getting into the thick of the, the season. So English Premier League, we talk about it every week. You've obviously got Man City on 71 points, Man United on 57. But you'd assume that that league's wrapped up. Um, no questions asked. There's more interest in the top four really than, than the title. The Championship. Norwich 83 points, Watford 75, Swansea 68, and then Brentford at 68, which looks like it might be um, the top four there. Barnsley was 64 points. I was not yeah. expecting, expecting that, and something that, that, that shocked me. I, I, I lived in Barnsley for about a year and a half, and back then in 2012, they were absolutely rotten. So to see <laughs> Barnsley up there yeah. and potentially going to make, if they make the playoffs, I mean, that would be a, a wonder season for them. Being made yeah. The playoffs. yeah, good for them. Um, in the Liga, we spoke about this a little bit. Atletico at 66 points, four ahead of Barca on 62. Real Madrid on 60 and then Sevilla on 55. So it looks like Atletico are going to blow that lead. And just a bit of quiet praise for, for Ronald Koeman, who we've given absolute mm. dogs abuse all year. But he's quietly gone about it and done a, a really respectable job. We looked in January when... They were finished. I think they were sitting ninth or tenth, and we were having yeah. a conversation of are they going to even qualify for Europe next year? Um, so for them to be four points um, behind Atletico, what I'm um, going to April will be will be amazing. If if Madrid throw away this league, they want to chuck it because I mean I'm, I'm so I'm actually almost speechless. I sat on this podcast in January, and I said they've got 50 points from their first 19 games. They could be on for a record season if they win their two games in hand. They're 16 points clear now. To go from that to where they are now is a disgrace in all honesty and serious, yeah. serious questions need to be asked if they don't win this league this year. Uh, Bundesliga, so I'll go on to um, the Bundesliga games coming up, but you've got Bayern Munich at top on 61, Leipzig on 57, um, and then it drops down to Wolfsburg, Frankfurt, and then sort of the other 
story in there is really Dortmund sat on 43. Yeah. For Dortmund to be 18 points behind Bayern in April, at the beginning of April, is, is God, just absolutely jaw-dropping and just talks about how bad their season is. So Leipzig-Bayern this weekend, uh, I think if Bayern win that, it's done. If Leipzig win it, then we're in for mm. a really, really interesting title race. Serie A, we talk about Inter on 65, Milan on 59, uh, then Juventus and Atalanta on 55 apiece. So that looks like it's pretty much done in Italy as well. Mm. I'd be surprised if Inter threw that away. League 1, we talk about quite often. PSG on 33 points, joint top with Lille. Also on 33, they play each other on Saturday afternoon. So all eyes will be on that game. Then you've got Leon and Monaco making up the top four on 60 and 59 respectively. So there's an awful lot to play for in League 1. Um, it looks as though mm. PSG are now just starting to find their rhythm uh, at a time when their opponents are not. The Eredivisie the in Holland, uh, the Netherlands, we don't really talk about it an awful lot. But Ajax, as you would expect, are 66 points, 11 ahead of PSV and Alkmaar, who are joint second on 55. So looks like that's pretty much done. Uh, the Primera Liga in Portugal, Sporting on 54, um, so yeah. Sporting on 64, Porto on 54, uh, Benfica 51 and Braga 50, so it looks like it's down to Sporting then to wrap that up. Uh, and Belgium, quite surprised at this actually, Club Bruges on 70, Royal Antwerp on 54, the club that Rangers dicked on in the Champions League over two <laughs> legs, I'm surprised that they were sat in second because they were average at best. Um, then Genk on 50 and then Anderlecht on 50 as well. I was surprised that Anderlecht being 20 points mm. behind of Club Bruges. And, um, I might read a bit more into that to understand what's happened. They've had it. a lot of... Anderlecht have had a lot of financial problems over the past sort of couple of years or so. Yeah, I don't um, know that's just decimated like they've the sport, had, They had, obviously, they had the Vincent Company experiment last season that didn't go on, <laughs> that didn't go particularly yeah. well. Like, was he a player? Was he a manager? Then he ended up taking back his manager role when he was a coach. But still a player. Now he's retired. Now he's a coach. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, they've had, though, it got to a point where their ultras were a little bit unhappy mm. and doing some protests outside the ground. Um, so, yeah, they're going through a bit of a transitional phase at the moment. So it's not that surprising as far as they're concerned. I love how much you downplayed that. Of the ultras were a little bit unhappy with the protest. I bet it was a bit more exciting than that <laughs> when, when they all got together. Yeah, they were a little bit unhappy. Uh, and, then, and then lastly, just um, in Turkey, we spoke about uh, Besiktas at 54, Gartas at 61 points, and then Fenerbahce lagging behind. So the Mesut Ozil experiment is not really reaping the rewards no, that they, yeah. they hoped for. Um, so that was just a whistle-stop tour of some of the leagues we don't usually talk about. And then in terms of upcoming fixtures this week, so... Obviously, not a lot of football tomorrow night. Um, I know there's a full championship card tomorrow, so we'll, we'll get your thoughts on yes. Wickham. Um, all of the Italian games are taking place on Saturday. Mm. Uh, no games on Sunday. They take Easter very, very seriously in Italy, yeah. as you would expect. So, no games on, on religious holidays. So, you've got on Saturday morning, Milan versus Sampdoria. You then got in France, Monaco versus Mets, Chelsea, West Brom. Napoli play Crotone. Sassuolo versus Roma, which would be a good game. Lazio versus Spezia, Atalanta versus Udinese, Dortmund, Frankfurt, uh, Leeds versus Sheffield United, Real Madrid versus Ibar, Paris Saint-Germain versus Leo, Torino versus Juventus in the Turin Derby. Uh, the big game for me, Leipzig versus Bayern. It's at half past five. We've got Gladbach versus Freiburg, Bologna versus Inter, Arsenal versus Liverpool, and then Lons versus Lyon. Into Sunday, we've got Southampton, Burnley, Newcastle versus Spurs. Stuttgart versus Bremen, Aston Villa, Fulham, Union Berlin versus Hertha Berlin. 
Um, a game that Hertha really need to win to, to keep their survival hopes alive. Man United versus Brighton, the return of that shithouse game from the Amex at the beginning part of the season. Sevilla versus Atletico. Now, this, could this be the, yeah. the, the, the match day where Barcelona you know, catch up with Atletico? It's very, yeah. very possible because on Monday night, Barcelona are home to Real Valladolid. Everton play Palace Wolves versus West Ham. And of course, uh, as we mentioned, return of the Champions League next week, we've got Real Madrid versus Liverpool and Man City Dortmund on the Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, we've got Bayern, PSG, Porto versus Chelsea. And I have to mention the forever postponed Juventus versus Napoli rematch will take yes. place on Wednesday night also. So um, we've had to endure some international football the last few weeks, but I must mm. say we're, we're more than making up for it with a really, really packed weekend in midweek next week. Can't wait. And um, just before we kind of conclude this section, we've had a few still a few questions come in. So um, one of our new listeners, Chris Hanley, uh, asked us, what have we made of Sporting's achievements um, and what the hell has happened to Porto and Benfica? Um, obviously, as you alluded to, um, that title race seems like it's sewn up by Sporting uh, and it could be their first title in over 19 years incredible when you consider and their record at the moment they've won 20 games drawn four lost none only conceded 11 goals all season so an amazing performance from those guys um but what i have um obviously been following a little bit of it is um the performance of pedro goncalves who um is the replacement of uh, bruno fernandez um believe it or not he's actually the player that wolves sold on to uh, sporting and um yeah, it's been his performances that have been propelling Sporting into this position. I mean, there's a lot of rumours around where he could end up after this summer. Um, didn't know if you guys had any thoughts on what you thought of the uh, Portuguese uh, division and the title race down there. But yeah, I mean, it's not very often that we can reflect on saying Sporting Lisbon being on top of their rivals, right? No, and I, I can't speak too much for Sporting because I haven't watched them this season, but I can speak a little bit about Benfica and Porto. Uh, Rangers have played Benfica in this year's Europa League and we played Porto in last year's Europa League. Uh, we played Porto last year. We beat them at home and drew away, I believe. And then this year we drew with Benfica home and away. Uh, now, although Steven Gerrard has a, a phenomenal European record, they, those are two teams that I would expect to give Rangers a quite a difficult game. And I think Rangers handled both of them relatively well. Um, without too much trouble, in all honesty. So I think it probably speaks a bit to the demise of, of those two clubs, although Porto have just put Juventus at the Champions League, um, which which can't go unnoticed. But um, it feels like it's probably um, a poor season for both of those clubs and a resurgence of a, a youthful, well-drilled sporting team. So oh, good for them. That I think you said before the pod, it's 17, 18 years since the last, the last win with Ronaldo was probably there mm. um, all those years ago. So, no, it's good to see someone else in the title and, you know, good luck to them. And Andy, we had a very interesting uh, question that I'll ask both of you. But um, this season, the All or Nothing documentary by Amazon is covering off Juventus, believe it or not. Um, so that's going to be fun to watch. Um, but the question from one of our listeners was, if you had a chance to uh, do an All or Nothing series on this season that we're currently enjoying which club would you love to see on that i mean it would have been quite interesting to see a all or nothing on sheffield united <laughs> it's all basically gone it's all gone to shit um but i would actually love to see an all or nothing at man united 
just so we actually know what actually happens behind the scenes, because often it seems to be a whole lot of fuck all most of the time. Um, I, I would just love for them to catch a clip of like Ed Woodward going about a week's work. <laughs> I think it would be infuriating <laughs> but no I think these kind of documentaries are always funny when the teams mess it up I mean if you look at um, Sunderland Till I Die I don't even support Sunderland but that those couple of seasons that they did it had to be in absolute stitches yeah. um, you know because they, they bring in these documentaries and go oh look at us we're perfect we're amazing you know, in, you know like if Manchester City when they did the all or nothing it's like look at Pep I am a godlike figure look at me I'm awesome um and obviously it comes up well on a documentary to go win everything but yeah it's always better when it all goes to shit um you know even another Spurs <laughs> all or nothing documentary would be quite interesting <laughs> yeah or no no oh, who would you have narrating Man United by the way oh narrating Man United well Tom Hardy's been doing the narration for the all or nothing ones hasn't he like I, I like David Attenborough like here we have <laughs> a wild Ed Woodward Pogba. in a conference room <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just like just really random but now I think Celtic actually imagine the all or nothing on that, their I was going to say that I was going to say uh, that that would have been like that would have been the meltdown would have been absolutely incredible what about you Craig um, it's probably the easiest question I've ever got answered it would be, of course be Rangers um, and it's really funny because Amazon Prime have tweeted out quite a lot of Rangers stuff like um, one of the time when people have been saying announce all or nothing and it would be it would be perfect but I think to get that level of achievement on camera would be great, but also that level of catastrophe from Celtic. If they could have done a joint all or nothing with a camera crew in each club and filmed them in chronological order throughout the season to see the change of both clubs' mentalities, the rise of Rangers and the collapse of Celtic, if they could have filmed that and cut between both during an episode before all fun games, I think that would have been an absolute blockbuster if they could have caught both seasons and one and one in the series that would have been pretty pretty special. But yeah, there's all, there's been a little bit of a very small rumor that there might be an all or nothing for Rangers because it, Amazon Prime don't cover our games. They've got nothing to do with the club, but they've been very Rangers happy on Twitter. And people are getting a little bit prematurely excited about maybe a, a documentary. But your fingers crossed. Mm. That would that would be. I could not have written a better end of season if we get if we get all or nothing. That would just be the cherry on the cake. Just to go for something different, I'd love to have seen Barcelona on this, just because oh. of what happened at the beginning of the season. Then you had uh, obviously the recent kind of arrests of the previous regime, <laughs> yeah. the presidential yeah. election, Cuban uh, shit, the uh, Champions League matches. I mean, blimey, that is more than twenty episodes alone, right? That is just crazy. And they have to I mean, that's what goes on at Barcelona sounds like an episode of Law and Order rather than All or Nothing. <laughs> and just video of them all in the canteen watching Sky Sports España, watching Suarez <laughs> banging goals from Madrid. Just, I'd love to just see them all eating their breakfast, just watching <laughs> Suarez banging goals. Uh, yeah, and that was Messi saying, that I want to leave, I want to leave, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh dear, classic. Um, Let's quickly just round up in terms of Champions League. I wanted to get your thoughts on where do we think this is going to go? 
um, because obviously it's going to be some tasty games. I, I felt for the City Dortmund match, Dortmund should go just all attack because they're not going to defend, let's face it, um, and they might as well go for it. Um, so let's get some initial thoughts. Andy, where do you think that first tie is going to be won? Is it going to be down to how well City attack or is it going to be a case of how well Dortmund can counter-attack? I think it'll go down to um, how much City can keep the ball off them. Because uh, that's one thing City are very good at. You know, if you can get at City and get at their full-backs and their centre-backs, they are actually vulnerable. But you kind of need the ball to do that with in the first place. Um, and I think what they'll probably do is, um, you know, it, as long as Pet doesn't do one of his European, I'm going to stick Carl Walker in defensive mid for the lulls kind of approach. He does tend to tinker a little bit in these games. I think he'll just be keep ball. Work, work the angles as he does normally, norm, as he normally does with the little cutbacks and one twos here and there. Um, and I think they'll just pick him off. I think they just need to be patient mm. because over two legs they'll score the goals. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd like to see you know Erling Haaland go on an absolute mad one. You know, a bit like uh, when Lewandowski did against Madrid. You know. Went back when he was at Dortmund, uh, just an absolute one-man hero performance. Uh, but yeah, I still see City going through with it. I think they'll control the game quite comfortably. And Craig, much the same thoughts? Yeah, much the same. Uh, I agree with Andy. Uh, this this looks. I know everyone's looking at Bayern PSG, but I think this might be the tie of the round. I, this could quite comfortably finish ten six on aggregate. Um, with <laughs> yeah. These two teams, I think, if Man City are patient, don't rush it don't let themselves be caught on the counter. I think they'll be absolutely fine. Remember, Dortmund are without Sancho, who's still recovering. Um, he's got a bad hamstring, I believe, so they're without Sancho. If they can keep Haaland even relatively quiet, I think the, the first, um, the home, the Man City at home first, I can quite see them winning that, you know, two or three, and then just going to Dortmund and just doing what, what's required. So, yeah, it should be pretty pretty straightforward for, for Man City, I would have thought. We'll start off with yourself with the other game, which is Real Madrid versus Liverpool. Um, we had a question come in for Tram, who said, do we think Sergio Ramos's injury for Real Madrid will affect them? Um, they've got, obviously, Nacho, who will uh, fill the void for that spot. But, um, yeah, obviously, Ramos likes his shithousery against Liverpool. Um, he's going to be missing for that particular match. Uh, I can't really quite make out this Real Madrid side still. Um, but, yeah, where do we think this match is going to go? I think Real Madrid will fancy their chances. I really do. And against this Liverpool team, and I've also, I think, I remember reading that the Real Madrid are in the opposite side of the draw from Bayern, PSG and Man City. So I don't think they'll have to play mm. any of them until the final, potentially. So you look at Real Madrid, um, if they're thinking, right, we need to get past um, this Liverpool team, and then you never know. Um, I think Real Madrid will fancy their chances. But then Liverpool will look at Real Madrid and think this is not a vintage side without Ramos. Yeah. Um, they'll both really go at it, but this is another very, very interesting game. But I think this is probably a toying course. I can really see this going either way. And Andy, do we think it's just a case of Liverpool need to make the advantage in the first game and take it into the second game? Yeah, 100%. I think Liverpool, you know, even when they've been not particularly great in the league, like if you go back to their you know, the Rafa Benitez days, they were dog shit in the league most of the time. Uh, but when it comes to like one and two leg games, they always need to turn up for them. Um, I mean, not having the crowd 
backing them, I think, will be a bit of a factor in it because they do rely on the Anfield crowd to really sort of push them over the line. So it could go either way. Um, you know, I'd probably prefer it, obviously, if uh, Madrid knocked them out, but they're going to be without Ramos. Obviously, you've got Liverpool without a couple of players, but... Um, yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be a tight, it'll be an entertaining game to watch. I don't think there'll be many goals in it, uh, but it'll be a good sort of tactical mm. duel. It's fair to say. And in terms of Wednesday's games, so we've got Bayern versus PSG. Obviously, Bayern will be missing Lewandowski. I imagine they'll probably stick uh, Thomas Muller up front as opposed to Chipper Moting because they like to bring that super sub off the bench. Um, but yeah. Um, it's going to be an interesting game, nonetheless. Um, PSG obviously have Neymar back from his uh, Brazilian party, um, but yeah, um, where do we think this will go? I think um, I think PSG might do it actually. Um, I think with Pochettino, they've got a little bit more. Well, they even show you last season; they've got a little bit more backbone about them. Uh, I think when it came to the final against Bayern, they were just beaten by at that time a better team in better form. Um, and that was that, really. Um, but I think, um, yeah, with Lewandowski being out for both legs, uh, Bayern don't have a huge amount of depth outside their first, you know, 11, especially up front. I mean, if you're having to bring off Chupa Moting, I think that says it all for your squad depth, to be honest. Um so, you know, whereas up front, you've got Mbappe could play up front. You've got Mario Cardi could play there. You've got Neymar. You know, you've got obviously people like Di Maria. Like they've got lots, a lot. They've got quite a lot of options. Uh, and they're a mm. bit more solid in the certain midfield of um, Ugey and uh, Ferrati as well. Um, so I think PSG will, uh, that's their best chance, I reckon, of getting over the line. And they have ultimately got to get to a point where they be they beat a big European team to go win the Champions League because that's why they're getting back to the hilt that they are because they should be winning the French League year mm. in, year out. So, yeah, I think they'll do it this time, but who knows? I, I was thinking about this, actually, when I wrote down the fixtures for next week today, and it just it goes to show how important Lewandowski is and how much faith I put in him because if Lewandowski was playing this game, I would say Bayern Munich win this over two legs. I think they I think they score they score more goals and I think they go through. But without him, and he's right, you've got to look at Thomas Muller's up front who is serviceable. But after that it's Jupiter Mortang. Um Joshua Zuxi who they played a little bit last year, I believe he's on one at Parma. So he's not there mm. anymore. Um and the argument with with Bayern Munich always is, like it is a bit with Spurs and Harry Kane, is if he gets injured, where are the goals really going to come from? Um, but it makes it an awful lot more interesting. PSG, it's their away in Bayern for the first leg, and if they can get an away goal or two, then I think that puts them in absolute poor position to go through here. So it's a lot more tightly balanced than I would have um, said if uh, the big pole was playing up front. What about yourself? What's your thoughts on Bayern PSG? I have to say there's an element where I kind of agree with what you're saying there. It makes it a bit more kind of even balance in that sense of, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not convinced by PSG completely. I still tip them as my dark horses for the Champions League. Um, and I think, yeah, like you say, without Lewandowski's goals, who takes that mantle? Um, Muller's probably the obvious one. And I still feel the quality of what Bayern will do in terms of their play will be a case of try and dominate. 
but then Pochettino's been known for kind of absorbing it and then just counter-attacking and, you know, just making the most of it. And with the quality that he's got up front, certainly it makes it more of an advantage for PSG. Um, I think the first leg is going to be a draw and I think it will go to the next game where it could be a case of 70 minutes, really them two getting at each other and then the last 30 minutes or 20, it goes absolutely schizo and they go at each other and counter-attack from end to end. <laughs> it could be one of those games because you know what? You don't know what to expect with a Bayern defence, but you also don't know what to get with a PSG defence. So I just think they might cancel yeah. each other out. It's hard to say. Um, but yeah, what about Porter and Chelsea? Obviously, Porter going into that kind of lineup, I would have thought, you know, they've got the momentum, but it sounds like Pepe's going to be missing for this match. Um, so... Thomas Tuchel, obviously doing quite good things with Chelsea. Do we think they're also outsiders in terms of like quietly progressing in this round? Yeah, I think one of one of you two gentlemen might have actually tipped him as your dark horse. Um, Chelsea defend really, really well. And I don't think there's any team in the Champions League who would want to draw Chelsea. They'll have enough to go through by Porto quite, quite easily. Um, and they might fancy themselves to go through into potentially go further so yeah they should be very very comfortable here and you never know if they can score a couple of goals then I think they could be dark horses for this tournament yeah Andy yeah I mean it was I think it was myself that said that Chelsea would be dark horses you know because of the change of manager that they've had and because of the more solidified style of play that Tuchel's uh, brought in um you know I think the worry is is that um you know when in the game against Juventus Porto took their chances um, and I think if you were to put one, if you're a Chelsea fan, I think one thing you'd be worried about is you haven't, they haven't really got a striker banging form at the moment. You know, they're having to get goals from the likes of Alonso, Aspen Equator, a couple from Mount, you know, not necessarily regular goal scorers. Um, you know, Timo Werner still looks no closer to being back to his best. I mean, if you saw his miss against Macedonia, uh, doing the rounds on Twitter. Um, I mean, he, the poor lads, his confidence is shot to bits. You know, Kai Havertz hasn't really, he's had obviously mitigating issues of COVID, etc., and just being a young lad moving to another country. But yeah, they haven't really got a forward that's banging form at the moment. I think Giroud, probably despite the age he is, is probably their best option up front right now. Um, he is one that you would back to be able to get a goal out of nothing. Because uh, he don't move around too mm. much, but he's got a fantastic touch and you can finish. Uh, but yeah, I would expect, given the resources of the two teams, you know, between a you know 56-year-old Pepe uh, centre-back for Porto, obviously he's not nailed to play, um, I would expect Chelsea to go through. Interesting. So um, yeah, looking forward to this weekend, listener. So without further ado, thanking you for listening to us. Um, just wanted to say, receiving some constant positive feedback from you guys. So keep it up, but please do us a favor and support us as well. So follow us on Twitter at HopelessPod. And don't forget, we're also quite active on the Instagram pages. Um, and also subscribe to YouTube, where hopefully we'll be doing something special there too. So without further ado... Andy and Craig, I hope you two have a good long weekend, being that it is this Easter weekend. So um, plenty of drinks, I'm sure, and partying. Uh, well, in the traditional sense, anyway, soon. 
and uh, <laughs> exactly and uh for the listener wishing you a good weekend or week whenever you're listening to us but for now thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.